It's old timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we are here this week to tell you about some historical true crime. Now, normally we talk about the Patreon before we dive in, but today I want to ask our wonderful listeners if they will do us a favor and tell two friends about this podcast. Do it. First of all, it's fun just telling people the name. It is. <laughs> I mean, I have told people the name and had them laugh out loud. <laughs> I'm proud of that. Yes. So, you know, if anything, you can tell your friends, two of them, please. You know, hey, I listen to this podcast. It's called, and this is the best name, Old Timey Crimey. And they'll get a kick out of that, probably. And then maybe they'll listen to us. And then you can talk about crazy cases, like the ones we're going to talk about today, where there's some madness in the mix. Certainly some madness. <laughs> Not quite the... Well, the kind of madness you're thinking and also another kind of madness. Reefer madness. Reefer madness. <laughs> so yes, please, if you would do that, it would really help us to grow. And with more growth, we are able to bring you more stories that you uh, enjoy. We are going to be talking this week about the case of Victor Licata. This episode is going to be structured a little differently because there was an article in Inside Detective Magazine, which is one of those kind of pulpy crime story magazines. And I say that with all due respect because this is an old-timey crime podcast and things get a little pulpy up in here sometimes. But it was, uh, it was something. It was something. <laughs> it was absolutely something. So I'm going to talk about that story with some... Very well-earned snark. I, I earned that snark and also a rant, <laughs> which I earned as well. And then we're going to talk about the actual facts that we know and do a little comparison of how that differs from the Inside Detective story. And then talk about how all of this affected U.S. laws mm -hmm. and still affects in many places today. So regarding the Inside Detective story, before we get started on that. Okay, so there's this thing when you're writing a true crime story. If you're going to physically place the reader into parts of the story that no one witnessed or that, you know, maybe the only witness or possibly the perpetrator never really described, you're going to have to use a little poetic license in order to really ground the reader in that time and place and event. But the story in Inside Detective goes a little further than that. It also contradicts some of the known facts of the case even as it's supposedly telling the story from the point of view of the lead investigator, like the lead detective. The trail on this, my sources are usually a little bit more reliable. This is a sketchier trail to follow, wasn't it? <laughs> Especially if you start with that insect detective story. So yeah, we're going to talk about this, and it begins with this little bit in parentheses. Herewith is presented a true story of the appalling horror the sinister weed brought to a respected Florida family. Read it carefully. Then consult your municipal government to find out what steps are being taken to smash the marijuana traffic in your community. Are your children safe from the reefer evil? <laughs> are they, Amber? Are your children safe from the reefer evil? I, I think everyone's children are safe from the reefer evil. I don't have children, but I have a cat and he likes catnip. Does that count? Yes. Okay. The day is October 17th, 1933 in Tampa, Florida. Neighbors notice that no one has come in or out of the Lakata house all day. So this family, the Lakatas, consists of the parents, 
Michael and Rosalia. They are 47 and 44, respectively. They have a total of five children. Their daughter, Providence, is 22. And then they have sons, Victor, 21, Philip, 14, and Joseph, 18. And then another son who is away at college. Michael has two barber shops downtown. They live in the neighborhood of Ybor City on East Fifth Avenue. I don't know what it was like back then, but right now it's only two blocks away from 7th Avenue, which was named one of the 10 great streets in America by the American Planning Commission. No, association. So I actually uh, lived in around Tampa for a little while, and Ybor City is where everyone went to party. Well, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, it was like the party town. And so that's what you would do on the weekends was go to Ybor City. It sounds like a pretty cool place. Yeah. Now, Ybor City itself was founded by cigar manufacturers. And for the first 50 years of its existence, up until the 30s, so around the time we're talking about, it was populated in large part with immigrants who were working in the cigar factories. They were largely Cuban, Spanish, and Italian. Gotta get them cigars. Gotta roll them cigars. But then the Depression hit, and you didn't really need to roll them cigars because business was drying up. Cigars are a luxury. When there's a big depression, people don't have as much money for luxury, so it was getting harder to find work. But for his part, apparently, oldest son, Victor, was playing in an orchestra. He's not a big dude. He's 5'8 and 127 pounds. Oh, he's skinny. Yeah, that is a, a rail. And police come after being alerted by neighbors that something is wrong at the house. So the first into the house is W.B. Bell. He's a motorcycle cop. And he breaks the front door even though the back door was open. And, and takes pains to tell this fact once more help arrives. He said the front door was busted open. He said, yeah, I busted it open. The back door was fine. I could have just walked right in. But it's, it's so weird that this makes I'm it so the I'm so tough. Yes. And so he finds this horror waiting in the bedrooms and calls for backup. They go through the house. The first bedroom they find is where Providence and Philip had been sleeping. They are dead. Providence's head was split by an axe, her skull. And Philip was also dead from skull wounds. In the second bedroom, it's more of the same. Rosalie and Joseph had been sleeping there and both of their skulls were split. Michael Licata showed signs of having been awake and defended himself. He's not in a sleeping position, but he's laying on his back over top of the bedclothes. He has an axe wound in his shoulder as well as a split forehead. And it's, it's kind of tough to say. There, there's a pool of blood on the side of the bed. The bed was like up against the wall. And so probably <laughs> that happened there. There was an altercation of some sort, but it's kind of hard to say. Because some versions have him being wedged between the bed and the wall, which seems like an odd thing. But he's not the last victim that they find. No, no, no. In the trail of blood leading from the bedrooms to the common rooms of the house, there is dog hair. The dog was a German shepherd and had, according to the police's assessment of this scene, attacked the murderer before he got to Michael Licata. And later on, they'll go into how the dog didn't bark to the extent that they make it a linchpin of the investigation, but it also they are like, well, the dog attacked the killer. So it's pick hard one. to bark when you're biting. Yeah. <laughs> and also, you won't bark, but you'll attack. No, you won't do stage one of panic, but you'll do stage five of panic. 
seems like an odd choice. The killer fights back, injuring but not killing the dog. So all those true crime fans who can really relate to the comic that shows <laughs> a woman sitting there listening to a crime show talk about the, the many murdered bodies and he had killed his entire family and the dog and she's sitting there and she's, not the dog! Yep. <laughs> not Fluffy! <laughs> the uh, dog, according to the police in this article, went for the throat, but the killer hit him with the axe, getting him in the shoulder. When the dog fell, the killer kicked him, then turned his attention to Michael Licata, who had been awakened by all this commotion. The account that's given by Detective Chief W.D. Bush, who gave this information to the, the writer of the Inside Detective magazine story, which was published in July 1938, by the way, and has a pulpy as crap cover. It's my favorite. It's so pulpy. It'll be on the social media. And according to him, the killer left by the front door and left it open. And then the dog went out the door, too. Does that strike anyone as weird? That he had to break the front door down? Yeah. I mean, did the dog close the door behind him or was there just... I locked it too. Yeah, or a strong wind that closed and locked the door or maybe somebody's working some, like, magic. No, I don't think any of these things are happening. So there's a little inconsistency right in the article. Yeah. I mean, there's there's internal inconsistencies here. So as the police are checking out the scene, Victor Licata returns home. And W.D. Bush describes him as, quote, a blanched and shivering young man in the pitiful state of one whose mind has been wrecked by sudden and terrible shock. Well, I mean, yeah, if you were gone and you come back and your entire family's been murdered, I would, I would say you'd be in a state of shock. Yeah, you wouldn't be exactly be having your, your best day. Yeah. <laughs> no. So. You wouldn't be those, like, oh, hey, fellas, what are you doing here? What's, what's all this blood from? Oh, <laughs> what the fuck happened to my dog? Like, no. Exactly, yes. W.D. Bush also describes the young man's appearance. He wore an immaculate white shirt and blue serge trousers, neat and creased. His slender fingers were those of a musician or an artist. Or other accounts have him found cowering in the bedroom in clean clothes, but with blood on his skin. Now, Bush seems so concerned about him and so sympathetic. He said, five persons dead and a mind shattered in the slender, sensitive body of this musician. My God. The awful toll of the night raider must surely be complete. Get him to a hospital, I ordered. Quickly. He needs attention. Somebody had a crush. Somebody definitely had a crush. The slender, sensitive body of this musician. I, I bet he kept looking at his fingers being like, I know what he can do with those fingers. <laughs> right? His hands would look pretty wrapped around my cock. <laughs> Bush definitely had a secret life that his uh, fellow cops didn't know about. Hey, slender fingers, good for butt stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. All about the butt stuff lately. I am. I was just talking about butt plugs in, in the tiny. I, I, I guess I, I'm just reading way too much smut. <laughs> that might be the case. Bush surmises that Victor's life was only spared because he'd have been out playing in the orchestra in the late evening when the murders occurred. Police send out a notice to laundry facilities that they want to search for any blood-stained clothing because... There's that bloody trail through the house. This person must have been just covered in blood. And they find the axe used in the murders and start checking for prints, but it's been wiped clean. They won't find any prints on it. Then they check out the bathroom. There's blood on the sink, but that's all the blood that is mentioned in the article. You would think if somebody went in there to wash up, there would be more than just a smear of blood on the sink. 
It's strange. That is pretty strange. But I, at the same time, they didn't really have the technology back then to be like, oh, look at all the blood we found in the pipes. Yeah, that and you know, maybe it was dark carpeting. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, no. He mentioned white tile. So I take it back. I was going to make a supposition, but I suppose I will not. Adorable. I suppose I will not supposit. Ori, I guess I'm about butt stuff, too. <laughs> butt stuff is in the air tonight, guys. Sorry. So it, it's a weird thing that he's like, the axe slayer of the Lakatas must be saturated from head to foot with the blood of his victims. And then he's like, well, there's a little smear of blood in the sink, but this white tile is just amazingly clean. Can you check out under her sink and see what she uses to clean this? Because I need this at home. Right? I, I feel like if you were going to wash off, though, then you would also probably clean up the area that you washed off in as well. Yeah. Because otherwise, you're just going to touch it again and get yourself recovered in blood. But white tile. There's going to be some signs of that. You're not going to be able to get that completely clean. I can tell you, okay? I, ha- I had to... I didn't have to. I offered to help clean a relative's house when they were ill. And they had all white tile in the kitchen, not by their choice. It was not a big kitchen. I mopped it for an hour. Just kept on finding more and more dirt because it's white. It shows the dirt. No matter how hard you clean, you can't get rid of literally all dirt. Yeah. Well, I mean, in theory, you could have thrown down like towels and then not actually touch the white tile. And then, yeah, definitely get rid of the towels. Yeah, in theory. Yeah. Because that's honestly, that's probably what I would do. Especially if it was like, I don't want to clean this floor. I can burn a towel. True. Yeah. Toss it in a dumpster or something like that. Yeah. He also finds cigarette butts. Four or five of them. And Bush says, I recognize the dark flecks of Cuban tobacco. But there was another substance in greater quantity than the tobacco. The stuff was pale brown. Marijuana. The drug weed of the Latins. The drug weed of the Latins. Getting racist a little. It'll get so much more racist, though. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Just wait till Anslinger steps in here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my. Bush goes on to say, here we go. Okay. All right. I can, I'm, ready for, I'm ready for my moment in the spotlight. It was marijuana that had killed beautiful Providence Lakata, her parents, and her two brothers. The murderer with the axe was the medium through which the drug worked. Marijuana had sung its song of violence and sadism, of lust and death, into the brain of a human being and blackened his soul. And I literally have the next bullet point is O-F-F-S. Because I'm too lazy to type out O for fuck's sake. But seriously, (laughs) for anyone that has ever smoked weed or known somebody that smoked weed... All of that is wrong. Yes, quite. You're not doing any of that. You're not even having the lust part either. You're going to eat some snacks. You're going to get some Cheetos. You're going to giggle a little. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of rage murder, (laughs) and I I don't. I mean, the worst crime you might commit is going off on a few long tangents. (laughs) Or driving 30 under the speed limit. Yes, that too. What I want to focus on, though, in that selection from this amazing piece of prose that was gifted to the world is the focus on the beautiful 22-year-old female victim. Notice, it's Providence Licata, her parents, and her two brothers. Yes. We already know their names at this point. There's no reason not to say them. 
it's just really telling of the values here. And the writer who Bush told the story to, it's as told to Jack DeWitt, also started out with several paragraphs devoted to Providence's beauty. Okay, here we go. Oh, good. <laughs> yes. I, say, I haven't seen this. So this. This will be delightful. It was something. So Providence, apparently total babe. Oh my gosh. Even in death, they just want to stick it in her. So moonlight streamed through the window and cast a soft radiance over the bed. Like fairy fabric, woven of stardust and the silver brightness of a Florida night, the moonbeams fashioned a coverlet for the beautiful Providence Licata. Oh, Lord. Providence slept with the tranquility that comes with 22 years of healthy young womanhood. Her hair was a dark mist against the moon-washed white of the pillow. Long lashes touched the delicate curve of her cheeks. Her full red lips were slightly parted. She had flung back the covers for the night was warm, and she lay like a sleeping Venus in the soft sheen of the glorious night. Wow. It's something, isn't it? It's something. Somebody had a crush. Mm-hmm. So this is my rant, okay? Providence was a human being with hopes and dreams and wishes and likes and dislikes. Maybe she wanted to go into a career or travel, or maybe she wanted to get married and just have babies. Maybe she liked men. Maybe she liked women. Maybe she liked both. Maybe she liked neither. Maybe she wrote the sweetest thank you cards, or maybe she had a really sharp sense of fashion. Maybe she was a really good friend, or she always had a joke ready. That doesn't matter at all in the eyes of this writer because we get exactly zero of that. Instead, we get the literary version of groping the poor girl in her goddamn sleep and treating her like an empty vessel to jack off into. Okay. And done. <laughs> Christy has some feelings. I feel better. I mean, oh my gosh. We get literally no description of anyone else except we do get this. Little Joseph and Father Michael both get the adjective sturdy. Sturdy. We can't even reach for the thesaurus and find a different word. They're both sturdy They're men. They're both sturdy men, yes. So I was just sitting there, I was like, oh my God. Because actually I skimmed over those paragraphs to get to the actual case. And then as it went on and they kept on referring to beautiful Providence and it's just mentioned so many times and she's singled out so much I thought, okay, I need to go back and take a, a look at how this article started. <laughs> and I went back and I just had a, a little a little rage stroke. Twitch, twitch, twitch. Yeah. You know when I start yelling across the office at Jackson, when I'm like, take your headphones off. I'm angry. Not at you. I'm angry at the words. I'm angry. <laughs> Listen to me. I'm angry at a writer who's probably long dead. More than likely. Not the first time either. So, yeah. It's hard to tell. Who is responsible for this, whether it's DeWitt, Bush, or both? This hyper-focus on Providence to the exclusion of her family. I mean, it's, it's writing for your audience. You can tell from the covers, these magazines are largely intended for a male audience. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going with DeWitt, though, because Bush had a thing for Victor. That is true, and yeah. long, slender fingers. Yeah, yeah. And it... I should, I should say a heterosexual male audience because it's surprising that that bit got in. I, I, I'm going to say DeWitt too. I always tell my students and I try to do myself, write to your audience. I can't really 
fault him for that, but at the same time, it feels super gross, so I'm going to go ahead and fault yeah, him for it, that. Yeah, it feels pretty gross talking about how beautiful a dead lady is. At least on, you know, in, in more modern true crime, we get some hint of personality. Yeah. But all we get is how she's like a sleeping Venus in the glorious Florida night, you know, and, and her lips slightly parted. It, they definitely yeah. make her into a sexual object when there's no need for her to be. Her looks were not in any way that we know of a part of this murder. Correct. So, all right. I feel much better now that I've gotten that out. I've been waiting for a couple of days. I'm, I'm glad you feel better. <laughs> we also learn that marijuana cigarettes are called reefers by what the author refers to as their reckless initiates. There you go. The state's attorney, J. Rex Ferrier, which that is a name. I like it. He comes by the scene then and said that he tried to talk to Victor, but he was still in shock. And that's when Bush tells him that a marijuana addict did this. He says he washed up here and smoked a few reapers. That's their, their theory. They decide that maybe Providence knew the murderer. Possibly somebody in the Lakata extended family had made an enemy. Michael's brothers were, uh, he had a brother who was an Italian consul in the city and also another who was a prominent businessman. And then we get this really incredible piece of wisdom from state's attorney Ferrier. And I, I want you guys to listen carefully because you're about to learn some super knowledge here. Prominent people often make enemies. Really? Thanks, Rex. Thanks. Thanks, Rex. Yeah. We would not have known. We have never seen anything like that where prominent people make enemies. Nope, nope. Never seen anything like that. And uh, that is, that's insightful. It's it truly insightful. really is. I'm feeling so snarky today. I love it. I'm, I'm bathing in the snark. Bush then calls the station and says, Hey, pals, round up all the reefer fiends. We got a murder. <laughs> and also lets us know that just last month, he and Florida's drug and narcotic inspector had worked together to round up all the reefer fiends they could find and put them in institutions. There you go. They are institutionalizing people for smoking marijuana. That is what's happening here. Well, now they just put them in jail, so I don't yes. know which is better. Well, I mean, in jail, you're not at danger of getting a lobotomy, but in the institution... How about they're both terrible? I think that's... Yeah, no, both terrible. <laughs> both terrible, yeah. Then we learn all about the effects of marijuana from Bush. So if you were not of our age and didn't get your, your D.A.R.E. education, then you should really listen closely because you're going to learn some things. Some eggs just cracked in a, fi a frying pan in my head. Oh, gosh, yes. So first they get a sort of lift, then a drowsy satisfaction... But then some of them get a feeling of impending danger and terrible death. And I would like to introduce Bush to a panic attack. Yeah. That's exactly what that is. And sometimes you can have one of those when you're under the influence of a drug. It is true. I'm going to say I know someone who had one once. And that's the situation. And that person, it was a, it was a bad night. Which, if they keep using the reefer, this would turn into, quote, a desire for action and a rage and delirium, ecstatic madness and an overwhelming urge to inflict pain and to kill. And then after that quote, my next bullet point is all caps, I hate this man. I really wish I could go back in time and make him smoke a bong and chill the fuck out. Right? 
This man needed nothing but just a, he just, he just he needed a joint. He needed some reefer. He needed the reefer. He needed the reefer, absolutely. Bush needs the reefer. <laughs> they do find the dog under the porch, still alive but pretty injured. And they come up with this, this idea that the dog will surely lead them to the killer. I mean, not literally lead them, but the dog can help identify the killer. Because the dog must know the killer since it didn't bark and wake up any of the rest of the household while the killer was going around axing all of them to death. Which is, that's a lot of weight to put on that dog for this case. Yeah, so the dog's been hit by an axe, and they find him. And they're like, Lassie, can I take us to Timmy? Well, essentially they're like, when he sees the person who hurt him, he'll let us know. But... The dog's been through trauma, and it was trauma that was probably in the dark, and he may or may not have known the person. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, the dog probably does know, because dogs can see better than people in the dark. Yeah. And smell. They do have the, the better senses than we do. That's true. But, I mean, it's an animal. It can still make mistakes. It's not exactly trained to, to like, do this. Yeah, because it can't talk to you. And yeah. so, if anybody comes near it, it'll probably growl. Because it's injured. Exactly. And so you can't take that as, like, fact of, like, oh, well, this person's the one that hurt him. Exactly. But the dog is part police dog, according to Bush. Mm-hmm. How, how, that's, how that's a thing, I don't Because it's know. a German shepherd. Yeah, I know, because it's a German shepherd. So uh, they, they really want this to happen because, quote, those animals have uncanny sagacity and no end of courage. Okay. So, another little button to push here, another little thread to pull, is that the dog was injured with the axe and left a blood trail through the house, and yet somehow stopped bleeding when it went out onto the porch and then crawled under the, the, the porch. Because they, they didn't follow the blood trail to find the dog. They were, according to the story, they were standing on the porch and they heard a noise under the porch, and that's how they found it. So, all of it is just... Very questionable. There's so many holes in this story. Yes, this does not make sense. Yeah, it's very strange. Before they even leave the crime scene, they think they might have something. As Bush says, the boys have turned up an admirer of the girls, a guy she shook when he turned junker. Another word for, you know, he's on the reaper. <laughs> See? So, so their theory is she had an ex-boyfriend who started smoking pot and she dumped him. Yes, and then he came and killed her and her family. Most uh-huh. of it. Uh-huh. Okay. This is a guy, he says, possessed all the attributes of the type adored by women and abhorred by men. How does he know his dick size? He's never seen the guy. He apparently <laughs> does now. Like, what is this attributes adored by women and abhorred by men? Strip search. It was yeah. a strip search. Yeah. Well, we, we do also get uh, some more wonderful phrasing when Bush talks about this particular guy and pot. His enslavement to the murder weed. The murder weed. The murder weed. My episode notes are titled Murder Weed in the Murder House. <laughs> Everything gets the appendage murder onto it. So, But this guy is a no-go. He has quite the rock-solid alibi. He's at a county hospital in Georgia under observation as a drug addict and has been for a month. Strong implications that he's in the psych ward. He was probably institutionalized. He was probably picked up by Bush. Although, even though he's in Georgia, they probably shipped him off somewhere. So, 
And so after striking out there, they start talking to literally anyone who smoked weed. These are their, they're going to find all the known reefer addicts that they haven't put in institutions and talk to them and see if they'll lead them to the killers or even if they knew the Lakatas and could tell them something. And then put them in an institution. Yes. They find one who played in the orchestra with Victor, who tells him that Victor's father got sore with him because he smoked the stuff. We also find out that Victor had a high probability of smoking murder weed just by virtue of being in the orchestra. Those people are the biggest users of marijuana. They say hot music is impossible without a reefer. Yep, can't make good music without being high, guys, in case you were wondering. We apologize to any musicians out there who were unaware of this until now, but now you know. The, the more, more you, you know. know. <laughs> we both did the rainbow. <laughs> and with that foundation of rickety wood, it's practically matchsticks, they start building a case that would blow over if a butterfly so much as looked at it, that Victor Lakata murdered his family, and they knew this because no matter how quietly a man had moved through that sleeping house, the dog would have heard. And as I said, the dog doesn't bark, apparently, but it does attack him. The not barking is solid evidence. It must have been friendly with you, they tell Victor, until you turned its friendship to hatred with that axe. <sighs> They'd had the dog for less than a year, by the way. So there's that. And also, I really have a hard time imagining that anyone could silently murder four people with an axe. Yeah, like, and especially with the shared bedrooms... Yeah, one of the people is going to wake up when you kill the other one. Yeah. At like, least a little bit. At least some some drowsiness or something, some moving around. Somebody sits up. There's no way to do this in a completely stealthy manner. Yeah, like you, you kill the father and the mother's going to wake up and be like, oh my god! Like, there's no way that you would sleep through that. That was also a weird thing, though. The fact that uh, it was Providence and I think Philip in one bedroom... And then Rosalie, the mother, and Joseph and another, and then Michael in, like, the master. I don't know, maybe, like, the youngest had, maybe one of them had nightmares, needed somebody to, to sleep in the same room with them, something along those lines. Or, well, we'll get to that <laughs> with, the, with the, the boys in that family and their issues. So, but yeah, I just, it, honestly, I mean, maybe the dog is, is a really barky dog, and they're just used to it. Although, I... I I have a hard time putting a lot of faith into that because our neighbors have a really barky dog and we're not used to it (laughs) after all this time. It still proves literally nothing. And also, oh, by the way, uh, people who knew the Lakatas said they had no dog. So this dog as the linchpin of the case in Bush's telling, it may be fictional. Entirely. Shockingly. So they arrest Victor. And as they're transporting him, he thinks they're going to take him back to the house. And he screams, don't take me there. Don't take me home. Well, yes. If, you, if you've seen your entire family murdered at your house, you're not going to want to go back there and, and no. anytime soon. That's going to be a horrifying experience returning to that home. Yeah, absolutely not. Nobody would want to go back there. Yeah. But they don't take him to the house. They don't take him to jail. They take him to the vet because it's time for a one man <laughs> rogues gallery <laughs> with the dog as the witness. Oh, I would also like to note for all the loving words slathered all over Providence, the dog is never named. Another point in the favor of the dog did not exist. Yeah. 
So they're going to do a lineup. They have the dog there. No other possible candidates, just Victor Licata. And as soon as it sees him, it tries to attack. But that, again, like we said, could be any number of reasons. Could be it's traumatized. Could be he looks or smells like the murderer. Maybe he abused the dog before the murder. Yeah. Maybe the, the dog has been abused by anyone else in this family. And, it, and now that it's been also hit with an axe, it's extra pissy. Can't blame it. My point is... A dog is not a reliable eyewitness. No, not at all. I mean, you can have dogs involved in many functions in a murder case. You know, you have dogs that sniff out drugs and sniff out the sense of decomposition and everything. Absolutely. This is not a trained dog. It's just a dog. Yes. That may or may not exist. Yes. I have in my notes, they have zero actual evidence. This is all in italics because I'm upset. They scrape under his fingernails, and they're like, well, this is a foregone conclusion, and this is what Bush says to Victor. You killed them all. There will be blood in the dirt from under your nails, for you were saturated with it. You killed them, Victor. Then you changed your clothes in the bathroom. You left the house and disposed of your clothes. You came back toward morning and pretended to have made the discovery. And of course, in Bush's retelling, this draws an immediate confession from Victor. Of course. I did it. They were going to send me to an institution. I was smoking reefers. I smoked a lot that night. I knew they were going to shut me up. I felt it, and it drove me crazy. I knew something awful was bound to happen. I got the axe, and... And I killed Providence first. I killed her first, and then I went mad. So his beef is with his father, who wants to kick him out. And is also the strongest of all of his victims. So you'd think he would get him out of the way first. Logically. The only reason to start with Providence is because she's a a beautiful 22-year-old woman in the flush of of young womanhood and has, you know, like, parted red lips and, you know, Venus and, and, and moonlight. And Bush says, Insane he was in truth, with the insanity that is caused by marijuana. The weed that will grow on any vacant lot or in a rural fence corner. The weed of hot music in the nightclubs and the honky tonks. Marijuana. The drug that sang the death song to Victor Licata and inflamed his brain with a mad lust to kill five members of his own family. So weed is how you make good honky-tonk music, too. Now you know. Now I know. We're learning everything today, really. We are. They have so much to teach us, these weird men from the 30s. So that is the Inside Detective story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I slogged through. And Which I feel like is so much bullshit. It's a lot of bullshit. And we're going to get into the real story, or at least as much as we can piece together here. This episode is sponsored by Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. You're not listening to this show because you hate crime stories, right? That would be silly. Exactly. You're listening because you love crime stories. And so you're bound to get a thrill out of the book Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. And not only for the thrills, for the history too. This e-lit award-winning historical horror fiction follows a serial killer through the decades. As investigations and technology evolve, he does too, always staying one step ahead of those who would stop his bloody acts. So check out Crazy Is As Crazy Does, The Life of a Serial Killer by John H. Mudgett. 
ebook available on Amazon and paperback on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Links are in the show notes. The word was that Victor Licata had been going through some mental health issues for over a year. He was considered unstable, and the police actually had wanted to have him committed. The police, the same people who were like, oh, he's just a sensitive young boy with the body of an artist and fingers and stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever it was. And his family was like, no, we got this. Because they felt they knew how to deal with his mental illness because they'd experienced it before. One of his younger brothers had what they then called dementia precox. It's essentially what we would now call schizophrenia. Before that, several family members had ended up in asylums, two paternal cousins, as well as a granduncle. And speaking of cousins, do you want to say it? His parents were cousins. They were first cousins. I actually did not know that. Oh, I have the incesty thing for us this time. <laughs> yeah, I don't have the incest in here. So, they were first cousins. Now, a lot of people will come to that when, when somebody says cousin marriage and everybody assumes automatic birth defects. A lot of people say, well, four, you know, there, there's, it's not actually a huge risk. Four to seven percent of children in first cousin unions end up with birth defects, which is only slightly elevated from children who come from non-related parents. So people are like, the risk is minimal. But we're learning more, especially regarding mental health. Well, mental health didn't exist in the 30s. That is true, too. Yeah. But even even today, sometimes you'll see people saying, oh, well, cousin marriage, or, you know frowned upon, but it's not going to hurt anybody because the risk is minimal. But it's not. Because a large Irish study found that for children of what they call consanguineous, oh boy, relations, which is related to each other. Can we just call it like kissing cousins? For children of kissing cousins, the chance of being prescribed antidepressants is tripled and the chance of being prescribed antipsychotic drugs is doubled compared to children of not kissing cousins. Wow. So. Well, a lot of that, too, might be because you only get one family reunion. <laughs> yeah. That, that is a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, that's... You only get one set of grandparents. Creepy and weird. It is creepy and weird. <laughs> yeah. So the story, as told to the papers and the police reports, might I add... Bush, which the police report was not written by Bush, by the way. Victor had gone out on October 16th and delivered some moonshine with some friends. He also drank some, came home around sunset, had some weed, then had a nightmare, and then he killed his family in a delirious slash hallucinating state. And so the nightmare he said he had was he dreamed that his father was attacking him and had him up against the wall. And then his mother came in with a carving knife, mocked him with it. And then they cut off his arms while the rest of his family laughed. And then his mother shoved new arms into the stump. And the new arms were just wooden arms with iron claws. That earned him the nickname, the dream slayer, not the weed slayer. It's, it's so weird though, because like, so his, in his dream, his dad has him pinned against the wall. His mother comes in with a knife his sister, brothers, and some aunts and uncles were all there laughing at him. Sounds like they're aunt, aunts and uncle uncles. Yeah, aunt, aunt, <laughs> uncle, uncle. 
And, and he's like, I'm, I was scared. My arms were gone. And so he said he, he grabbed an axe, but it was f- a funny axe that was made of rubber. Mm. And that he hit his tormentors with this rubber axe. And he insisted that he did not kill anyone because he was just fighting them off with this rubber axe that was just there. I mean, hallucinations, not from drugs necessarily. But from the schizophrenia. From mental, yeah, mental illness. Yes. That sounds very much like a hallucination you would have from from mental illness. Or, you know, maybe the weed was laced. (laughs) I was going to say, that was not weed. If if that's what triggered it, it was definitely not. Exactly. I had this, okay, just a quick question. I had this moment when I was researching this where I was like, what the hell ever happened to PCP or angel dust? With the 90s, when they were talking to us about the dangers of drugs, they would always bring up how people get super strong on PCP and, you know, they, they cause all this ruckus. And, and then I haven't heard about any crimes related to PCP in like 20 years. I guess maybe everybody started doing meth. That could be. I mean, meth is probably cheaper and easier to get. And PCP, if I remember right, was actually made by the government. So it, it's possible that they just stopped making it oh. and then meth was easier to replicate. Well, I need to look into that theory. <laughs> I had never heard that. I read figure. an article and I, I have no idea if I'm remembering it right because, I mean, I drink a lot. Um <laughs> But I, I believe I read an article that PCP was actually created by the government to to do some testing on like how the human brain works and processes things, and so it was it was deliberately made and given to people, and then became just a lot of fun for people to take, and so that backfired. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so I'm I'm assuming that it's just more difficult to replicate in meth. It was easier to to do in kitchens with cough syrup. Yeah. True. 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 The uh, neighbors heard noises at the house around midnight. That's the assumed time that this all took place. And those same neighbors were the ones who called the cops about the lack of activity at the home in the morning. The police accessed the house via a window in the back of the house. Not either of the doors. They were both locked. They found Victor Licata in the house. He was in the bathroom, sitting in a chair with his hands to his head. When asked what was the matter, he didn't reply. And then uh, later, Henry Anslinger, which remember that name because you're going to hate it very soon. (laughs) Amber just let out a a deep sigh. He led the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He said that the police had found Lakata staggering around the scene, covered in blood, and that he confessed he'd been smoking muggles. The slang that he and his friends used for marijuana was muggles. Let's just sit with that for a moment, shall we? Well, I wonder. I wonder. (laughs) I wonder, too. It is a strange coincidence. There were also relatives at the scene with the police, including Rosalia's sister. She was the one who went into one of the bedrooms and found the first bodies that were discovered. So Rosalia's sister and... and, um, Also Michael's cousin. Michael's cousin. And Victor's aunt-aunt. It's my nephew second and cousin. cousin. Yeah, I think that would be like a second cousin maybe too. Oh my God, that family tree is, is just, it's a circle. The newspaper has Michael being the first that was killed, although 
that's from a report the day that the murders were discovered. So you guys all know how it is. In the immediate aftermath of any violent incident or big incident, a lot of false information gets out. You know, just word gets transmitted incorrectly and gossip gets spread. I mean, we saw it here. I was part of it when we had the dam is, you know, breaking. The dam is breaking when we had the, the remnants of the hurricane coming through. Yeah, they they actually told us that the dam had broken. And this is an area that's been prone to some disastrous floods. So everybody's in a friggin' panic. Yeah. Literally, it, the National Weather Service reported that the dam had broken. Yeah. No more reliable source for weather information can I think of. And then three hours later, whoops, nope, not broken. Just that's the overflow. It's meant to do that. It's all good. It's all good. Everything's fine. I mean, they, they evacuated everybody, which they needed to, because it, was, it yeah. was still flooding with the dam going over the spillway and everything. But yeah. And also, it's not completely out of the question, because both that dam and the dam that's just up the road from my house, but don't worry, I'm on high ground, are both rated poor. Yeah. And likely to kill someone if they break. Yes. Or many someones. So yeah. I mean, we saw how that happens, and it could easily happen here. So I definitely don't put as much trust into reports that are the day of the next day as I do into reports that come out a little bit later. With more time comes more information. Well, even we just recently passed September 11th, and mm-hmm. this was the 20-year anniversary. And when that first plane hit, I don't know if you remember, when the first plane hit, though, nobody realized it was a terroristic attack. It was like, oh, my God, a plane has crashed into a, a building in New York. Like, the first reports were not a terror attack. It was like, oh, this must have been an accident until that second plane hit. And then everybody's like, holy fuck. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but the first reports were not, were not. Everybody just assumed it was an accident because that seemed like the simplest reason. And. It wasn't really precedented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the first reports are usually incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. Or at the very least, inaccurate. Yeah. When I left my apartment to go to my second class on 9-11, I really could have not gone, but I went. As I was leaving, they were saying that a plane had crashed in Pittsburgh. And I'm freaking out thinking about all the people I know in Pittsburgh. I had lots of friends out there. And a lot of the my college classmates had family there. A lot of them came from Pittsburgh. So I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be an absolute disaster. I go to class. I come back. And guess what? It crashed in Somerset, which is a lot closer. A lot closer. <laughs> and uh, I do believe I never was able to find proof of this, but I heard that some some students at UPJ in a class went to the project where they looked at the trajectory, uh, the, the path of the plane, and it did fly right over our school, where I was, sitting there in class and freaking out anytime as somebody so much as turned on their car outside, like a, an engine starts up and I'm jumping out of my seat. But it was still a good class. So anyhow, that felt like a tangent, but it wasn't because it was proving something. The fact that we can't always immediately trust the first information that comes out. Have some skepticism, have some doubt look for multiple sources, and even sometimes when it comes from a reliable source, they're run by human beings. Yeah. It is, believe it or not, not robots that run the National Weather Service. They can be misinformed, too. And even if it was robots, don't believe them either. No, don't believe the robots. Google is wrong all the time. Another thing that did not make it into Bush's story was that Philip was alive 
When the cops came to the house, he died at the hospital later. The axe was in the room where Rosalie and Joseph slept, despite Bush's story that the killer got Michael last. I mean, you would think once you were done with the axe, you wouldn't necessarily return. Who knows? I, I, I can't delve into this mindset at all. It's just... Mm. And then, also not mentioned in the article, is that there was a whole other member of the family, Anthony, who was off at college. Can you imagine being that poor guy? Yeah, his, whole, his whole family is, is gone because he was away at college. Yeah. The police report tells us that they took Victor Licata right to the jail with no detours to the vet's office. There's not even a mention of a dog in the report. I think, really, Bush knew that people would connect to a dog story. You know, I, I actually, I did have an article where the, the younger brother was still alive when police arrived but died within a day. The final victim was the family's German Shepherd. That's the only mention of a dog I have. Okay, all right. One mention isn't really enough to convince me, but also I am predisposed to disbelieve every word that comes out of Bush's mouth. So. Yes, that, well, that's <laughs> probably good to do. But I will admit that I have a bias there. So it's important to acknowledge your biases when they're that strong. There's also nothing about weed in the house, either in like cigarette butts slash, you know, roaches, whatever, or loose. And Victor's not described as being covered in blood underneath his clothes. But from the beginning, Bush is there telling the papers that Victor was hooked on marijuana. This starts a panic as we'll go into, there was already some campaigning against weed, but this really, especially in the area, you start seeing opinion pieces advocating for making weed illegal. Some articles about the murder reference both the mental health concerns and the supposed weed addictions. So some, some articles were splitting it right down the middle. They were like, well, let's tell everything and let the reader make their own conclusion. In addition to the idea that he, Victor himself put across that he had done this after a, a dream in a sort of delirious state, there's a theory that he came home later than the paper said and was so drunk and stoned that he didn't notice the murders until he woke up the next morning because he slept in a different room. He wouldn't have necessarily gone and checked all of his family members' rooms. I mean, especially when you're, what, 21, 22 years old? You don't do that. You come home drunk and you stumble your ass into bed and sleep it off. Yeah, that is very true. And there's a theory that, you know, essentially very similar to that, that he slept through the murder. Maybe he was already there, but in a heavy sleep, sleeping it off. Murder came in and missed him because he wasn't necessarily sleeping in a bedroom. They were using one of the common rooms as a bedroom for him. Big family, smallish house, so. There's also theories about the mafia. Or... The KKK. Why not? I didn't even delve into these because I find them kind of crackpotty. Yeah. Crackpotish. Crackpot-esque. Crackpotato. You're fired. <laughs> you can't fire me. I will continue making puns. Or whatever the hell that was. Wordplay. I play with words. Crack potato. It's literally in my nose. I got a little loopy. In this case, because I was still very angry at Bush. Were you smoking the murder weed? Should I be scared? <laughs> we do have axes. But do you have murder weed? Because you need an axe and the murder weed. And this needs to be a murder house. Uh, we do have what I call a murder room. Oh, okay. 
in the basement just because it feels creepy to me. And I think that a, a murder has to have been committed there or will be in the future because it just screams murder. And somebody will be in that room screaming murder or has been in the past. It's a creepy room. I don't like it. I stay away from it. Pretend it doesn't exist. So we have a murder room. We have uh, murder axes. In fact, we have a double-sided hatchet that I got for Jackson for one anniversary. And Nothing uh, says love like hatchets. Right? And I'm not going to say anything about murder weed and whether I have it or not. So uh, Fair enough. Plausible deniability. There you go. There's a psychiatric exam of Victor Licata. He is diagnosed with dementia precox with homicidal tendencies and described as overtly psychotic. For some reason, murder weed is never mentioned in that psychiatric exam. Because it's actually done by a medical doctor, perhaps. Maybe. Now, one interesting thing is that supposedly, in this very general time period, there was a serial axe murderer in Tampa who killed off families. I did look into this as much as I could because newspapers.com has the the two Tampa newspapers that I need hidden behind the wall for the, it's like the ultra newspapers.com subscription. And I was not about to ask wonderful Chris Garcia to spend more money. I was grateful for what we got. You know, I was grateful just to be able to access most newspapers and not all. Newspapers.com, take down your walls. Bring, Bring down those walls. There was one only one and a half miles from the Lakata home in 1926. And that same year, there was a murder that was not necessarily an axe murder, but kind of similar in that it was with a railroad spike mall. So a, a tool you'd use for pounding in railroad spikes. Now, the location of this one was a little harder to ferret out because I think street names have changed since then. If I figured out the correlation to the modern map and the old street names, that's only one mile from the Lakata house. He was getting closer. Yeah. So there's this idea that this these serial murders had been happening in 1926 and then maybe it got too hot and so the killer stopped. Or it had a cooling off period of like seven years. Maybe moved somewhere else, axe murdered some people there and then came back to Tampa. All these different maybe ideas. Maybe got a girlfriend that calmed him down for a little while. Happens. Happens. There's never a trial. Victor Licata is sent to the Florida Hospital for the Insane. Don't blame me. That's what they called it. Within less than a month after the murders. And uh, everything is quiet on that front until 1945 when he escapes along with four other patients. There were three murderers and one armed robber. They sawed apart bars over the window with hacksaws, and then climbed down a ladder made of sheets. Oh, the classics. I love it. You never get tired of the classics. They were all recaptured except for him until August of 1950. He had been in New Orleans for about nine months, hopping around from place to place. Then he visited with a cousin. A cousin cousin? Is it actually a cousin? Uh, it's really hard to tell. Again, this, this family tree is a circle. Yeah, like I'm trying to... Yeah, I, I guess it could be a cousin, a cousin, cousin, or it could be a cousin brother. Who knows? Yeah, just people, the branches of your family tree are not meant to intertwine. Keep that shit separate. That cousin called police after he said Victor had stolen $170 from him. He denied stealing the money, but did say that, yes, he committed the murders. So here's what I have with that. So the cousin, his name is Philip. And 
Philip said that he strolls in, and Philip buys Victor dinner, bought him beers, and asked that he come back another time. Oh. So he did come back and stole the $170. And then he came back a third time, and that time Philip turned him over to the police. Mm -hmm. So that's what I have from what I pieced together in the articles, that he actually was there three different times. It's an interesting family dynamic there, family, family. Yeah. <laughs> With his cousin, cousin. <laughs> well, and, and Philip even told a reporter, I was afraid of him, all right, the way you'd be afraid of any crazy man. Oh. So, like, Philip's part of him. seen some shit. Yeah, I feel like part of him was like, well, he's family, so I'll feed him. And I want him to, to not axe murder me. Also so that. I'll be real nice. But then I want the cops to get him, so I'll invite him back. And if he feels safe mm. here, he'll come back here, and then the police can come and get him. I feel like the $170 was just the last straw. Yeah. I feel like maybe Philip wasn't actually, like, I don't proactive think he was, about it. Yeah, I don't think he was going to turn him in until he stole from him. And then he was like, you know what, fuck this guy. <laughs> exactly, yes. And Victor said about the murders, I remember all about it, but I don't know why I did it. Oh, he also said that he'd escaped... Because, we don't necessarily have records of this that I can find, but this is what he said. The authorities had finally deemed him sane. Which is a possibility when they send somebody off to judge them mentally incompetent or insane or whatever. And then send them to a hospital instead of a prison. You can be deemed sane and then released. But, they did one, they didn't do the other one. They deemed him sane. But they wouldn't release him, and so that's why he escaped. He was put in state prison. I would like to note, this man has never had an actual trial. This seems wildly unconstitutional. Yeah, yeah. So there was never a trial. Incredibly problematic. They sent him to an asylum. Then they said he's sane, but he's still not leaving the asylum. So he escapes. Which is what a sane person, I feel, would do. Yes. In fairness. Yeah. And so then he, he gets to walk free for, what, like five years? Yeah. And then they pick him up again and throw him straight into jail. Again, no trial. We have no verification that he did this. This is insane. Yeah. This is what's insane. <laughs> yes, this is the insane thing. Now, maybe they were planning on having a trial, but we don't have anything even referring to that. So I, I'm just throwing a maybe out that doesn't have any basis in the actual records and, and newspaper articles because... I actually have. There was no trial. Licata was quickly judged insane and sent off to the state hospital. <laughs> there was no trial then. Maybe they were planning on having a trial for him after he was brought to the state prison. But generally, you don't keep people in the state prison when they're waiting for trial. A lot of the times you keep them in the jail. This is nowadays rules, but I know Pennsylvania has a rule that incarceration in the state prison, you have to be sentenced to a year or longer. And otherwise, you're going to end up in the county jail. Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, this is a different state at a different time. I don't know if that was the rule, but it's if they were holding him for trial, it's weird that they would do it in a prison. Yeah. Even if they were planning a trial, doesn't really matter because he hanged himself in December of that year. Although there are some people who also think that he was Epstein. So. He was Epstein. It's <laughs> a verb now. It is, yeah. But even though he was gone, his story wasn't quite over. He actually would reverberate through the, through the decades in the laws that were made. 
Just a few years after the murder, Victor and the brutal deaths of his family were used to help justify changing the laws and instituting a federal prohibition on marijuana. And that was spearheaded by, I think I said Henry earlier, but I really think it's Harry Anslinger. Harry J. Anslinger, comma, fucker. Oh, yes. I think of him as that asshole. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about this. He had been commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That's basically the predecessor of the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, for seven years in 1937 when his campaign against marijuana really picked up speed. Okay. Well, here's the thing. So prohibition was basically at its last call. Yes. <laughs> nice, nicely done. Well, well done. Damn. <laughs> and so he, I think at first they were planning on to focus on heroin and cocaine. Mm-hmm. But then they realized that marijuana was much more widely used and it's easier to attack it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing is, though, that prohibition against marijuana had actually begun in a very general small-scale sense in 1911. Individual states had enacted laws against it. By 1933, 29 states had criminalized marijuana. Newspapers were publishing plenty of propaganda. And so I found this. It was in at least 20 newspapers in 1934, and that's just what's been digitized. It was the same exact article. Most of the page was exactly the same with only a few differences. So I don't know if it was a newspaper syndicate or if it was something pushed by the government. But there's an article about weed. I just, I just get such a kick out of these descriptions. So here it is. If you craved cocaine or heroin, the only way you could get it would be to buy it surreptitiously from a peddler. But marijuana can easily and cheaply be made by almost anyone. Mary Warner, as it is known among the waterfronts, will grow in window boxes, backyards, any patch of earth. Oh my god, if you have a window box of marijuana, you are my friend. So, after the first few puffs, the novice experiences a sense of wild hilarity. Check. Then he falls into a profound slumber. The second time, however, the real effects begin to tell. Space and time become vastly distorted so that a second seems like hours and a kiss will last forever. Sensuous images... That's romantic. I know, right? Sensuous images become magnified and last indefinitely. A hand clap sounds like a thunderbolt and the addict can literally hear a pin drop. The craving for it becomes greater, unconquerable. After five years of taking it, periods of temporary insanity result. I don't feel like they were smoking weed. Because some of that sounds like ecstasy. Mm-hmm. Some of that sounds like neither of those things. I w- I'm curious as to, like, did he just go into a room and try all the drugs all at once? All right, so this idea just popped into my head. This idea of, after, after five years, temporary insanity, or marijuana will cause temporary insanity. Maybe people with mental health issues were smoking it to alleviate the symptoms of those mental health issues. And then the mental health issues break through nonetheless, like schizophrenia, anxiety, stuff like that. So maybe they were doing it to try to to, to fix those symptoms or to get some relief. But of course, there's no real, in any true sense, mental health treatment. So that's all they can do. And then it ends up causing them to actually act out Not because of the weed, but because of the symptoms they were trying to... Mask. Exactly. Exactly. That is my theory. And and I'm 
sticking to it. It had been vilified in a lot of papers even long before this propaganda campaign began in the 30s. This is from the 1918 El Paso Times. I'm going to go ahead and apologize for any difficulties with reading this because it is blurry. Attempted to take city. Another instance of the terrible effects produced by excessive use of marijuana occurred about two years ago when a Mexican soldier, single-handed and alone, planned to ride across the Stenton Street Bridge, annihilate the American forces here at that time, and take possession of the city. Heavily armed and mounted on a Mexican cavalry horse, he dashed up the Mexican side of the bridge and, when ordered to halt, opened fire on the guards. None of his shots, however, took effect, and he was killed before reaching the middle of the bridge. He lived long enough after receiving his death wounds to give a hint as to his purposes. That is definitely the most ambitious anyone has ever gotten while high. So I feel like he was actually on the horse completely naked and maybe had, like, a a tree branch or something that he was swinging wildly. (laughs) I feel like he did not do any of the things they said he did. I agree. I agree. Or... Maybe he did, but he wasn't stoned. Or that. Or, or that. that. Yeah. But I, I much rather picturing just like a naked, happy guy running around swinging <laughs> something, yeah. riding a horse over a bridge, and they're like, ah, kill it! There's also criminal trials where it is brought up. And honestly, it could just as easily be brought up by the prosecution to demonize the defendant or by the defense in an attempt to get them off. It was, it was used... For attempts at like kind of temporary insanity, please. So, and then the article titled "Marijuana Assassin of Youth" by our good pal Ann Slinger was published in the American Magazine in 1937, and the next year would be condensed in Reader's Digest. Oh, I wonder. I have some very old Reader's Digests from my grandfather. I think they're all from the 40s but I wonder if I could look through them if there were any from the 30s. It would be hilarious if I had. I found this this whole article on the internet, so I don't need it, but (laughs) it would be so funny if I actually had that. The print copy. Yes, the actual print copy. That would be amazing. This article, among other stories that were used, used the story of the Lakata family to advance the cause of prohibition of marijuana. It was the centerpiece... And a few details were changed, like uh, his insistence that Lakata was known by the cops to be totally sane right up until he smoked some muggles. Mm-hmm. Literally, he writes, the officers knew him ordinarily as a sane, rather quiet young man. Do the cops actually know the sane, rather quiet young men? Nobody knows them. They're busy with yeah. the not sane, loud young men. <laughs> you smoke a joint and you're likely to kill your brother, he said. Oh my gosh, I know. He also included references to his gore files, which were a collection of stories of marijuana-influenced crimes. There were 200 cases in them. I can't actually find the particular... Cases. They're just mentioned in places and summarized here and there. But skeptics have dug into them and they were able to disprove the connection between marijuana and the crime in 198. And the last two stories, they couldn't even find any any evidence that they had even happened. So Anslinger also consulted 30 doctors about marijuana and violence to find the connection. 
29 doctors were like, there is no connection, drop it. And one guy goes, maybe there's a connection. So he fired the other 29 and kept the one guy and then trumpeted that doctor's findings. It's like that one dentist that doesn't chew Trident. Yes, that's exactly. (laughs) But he hired him. (laughs) Out of 30 doctors, one person agreed with him, and he was like, you're hired. Everybody else go away. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, really. Talk about cherry picking. That's the literal definition of it. Some of the stories he tells in this article, there's a story of the suicide committed by a young woman who was, she was troubled by her performance in school, and while she was high, she realized that the solution to all of her problems lay in jumping out the window. There's the story of a young man who raped a 10-year-old girl and then claimed temporary insanity due to the marijuana. And in the article, in this article, widely read, he encourages law enforcement to search for marijuana behind cases of criminal and sexual assault. Now, any of our listeners who are familiar with the progression of the satanic panic in the 80s and then into the 90s, you'll know that this idea of people in positions of power encouraging law enforcement to try to attach this moral panic motive to crimes that may or may not have happened in order to further their agenda is how we get a moral panic. (laughs) That's how it happens. In the satanic panic, they started telling people, Oh, you know, you better check on the children. There's children reporting that their daycare workers are performing satanic rituals on them and molesting them. And so then people actually almost literally made it happen. They didn't didn't literally make it happen, but they essentially led the children to those conclusions. Yeah, well... Because they were told, this has to be the reason. It can't just be because some people are freaking evil, but not in a satanic way. Well, and Anslinger really was... This was pushed by racism. A hundred percent. Which of us is going to say the line? Well, we'll get there. Um, I have a couple more stories that he told. Oh, okay. And then we have the script, too. Ooh, that's going to be fun. So, in the stories was also this totally believable conversation between a cop and a member of a gang of seven marijuana enthusiasts who had performed 38 holdups. I take it back. The guy who tried to take over the city was not the most ambitious (laughs) stoner I've ever heard of. It's this guy, so. And his seven marijuana enthusiasts. Uh, So I'm going to be the kid in this conversation. We're going to do a little dramatic reading for you. I'm going to be the police officer. Yes, so. We only work when we're high on tea. On what? On tea. Oh, there are lots of names for it. Some people call it moo or muggles or Mary weaver or mooka or weed or reefers. There's a million names for it. All of which means marijuana? Sure. Us kids got onto it in high school three or four years ago. There must have been 25 or 30 of us who started smoking it. The stuff was cheaper then. You could buy a whole tobacco tin of it for 50 cents. Now these peddlers will charge you all they can get, depending on how shaky you are. Usually, though, it's two cigarettes for a quarter. But after you get the habit, you don't bother much about finding a place to smoke. I've seen as many as three or four high school kids jam into a telephone booth and take a few drags. Remember that filling station attendant you robbed? How you threatened to beat his brains out? I've got sort of a hazy recollection. I'm not trying to say I wasn't there, you understand. The trouble is, with all my gang, we can't remember exactly what we've done or said. When you get to floating, 
It's hard to keep track of things. Okay. So, one, this is ridiculous. Yes. And two, I really wish you could buy weed for 50 cents. (laughs) (laughs) Those are some amazing prices. I love those prices. I'll I'll go in that telephone (laughs) booth. There is a gem of a line in a story about a runaway girl who had been found with five men in a Detroit marijuana den. How many children had smoked there will never be known. There were 60 cigarettes on hand, enough fodder for 60 murders. He's literally saying that anyone who smokes marijuana is going to kill people. He's literally saying that. Yo, there are a lot of people that smoke pot and a lot of people that are still alive. Mm -hmm. Just saying. No correlation. Yeah, it's funny. So um, more and more states have legalized either weed overall or at least medical weed. And uh, yet the murder rate is going down. It's because everyone chilled the fuck out. Although, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if there was a riot over that Mountain Dew flaming Hot. Because it is sold out on the website I checked. So did Jackson. Because <laughs> you are all literally probably should be institutionalized. I mean, I'll do it once. I'll do anything once or twice. Yeah, you will. Usually twice. Then Anslinger gives these stats out of New Orleans. Of 437 persons of varying ages arrested for a wide range of crimes, 125 were addicts. Of 37 murderers, 17 used marijuana, and of 193 convicted thieves, 34 were, quote, on the weed. On the weed. On the weed. Seems like addicts would be more likely to be heavily represented in the theft category. I'm just saying. When you're hooked on something, not that you can get hooked on weed, when you're hooked on something... You are more likely to steal for it. You know what? I was hooked on phonics. (laughs) And I I did not steal anything. Right? Except for the nation's heart. (laughs) And you did. You stole our hearts shamelessly. But according to Anslinger's article, in 1931, the marijuana file of the United States Narcotic Bureau was less than two inches thick. While today, the reports crowd many large cabinets. That line in particular is probably going to sound familiar to some people, and we'll get into the reason why in a minute. The only thing cramming those cabinets is his own shit. Right. He does, of course, bring up in this article the bill moving through Congress, which is the whole point of the article, Mm -hmm. to fight the, quote, dope evil. And I would like to announce an old-timey crimey first. I found the subtitle while I was writing my notes. This episode is definitely going to be titled Dope Evil. Dope Evil. Because that is the best subtitle, isn't it? Dope Evil. Man, that evil is dope. (laughs) It is some dope evil. It is some dope evil. Normally, I just pick something that we say during the episode, but this time I was like, oh man, I mean, murder weed is good. Dope Evil is better. (laughs) He ends with another anecdote about a marijuana murder. A youth. A youth. Killed an innocent shoeshine man after a sudden bout of paranoia. And when the cops asked him why, he said, I thought someone was after me. That's the only reason I did it. I had never seen the old fellow before. Something just told me to kill him. Then Anslinger ends the article by underscoring his point with two final words. That's marijuana. Oh my God. That's all, folks. It's not. We're going to keep going. But (laughs) that's marijuana. It is really, I hate him. 
I hate him. I have I have hated murderers we've talked about on this show less than I hate Anslinger. Yeah, no, like I I'm not even mad at the murderer here, the, or the possible murderer, but Anslinger's he's just a fucker. Yeah, I think Victor and his family were all victims of mental illness and of bad mental health policies or completely lacking mental health policies. They're filling up mental health facilities, institutions, with people who are smoking weed. And meanwhile, they're leaving schizophrenics with no treatment and no help whatsoever. But also... Even if that treatment is a freaking lobotomy, which is not good. But we don't know that Victor did this. We don't. You're right about that. I do feel like it's most likely... Is it likely? Yes. But at the same time, even back to the tiny that we did earlier, we had a very likely suspect and it was somebody else that actually did the murder. Amber absolutely was set on it being the husband. I think he was also <laughs> going to kill her too. She thinks that both of two men were both separately, individually planning to kill this woman on I'm one night. I'm sticking to it. Nobody ever, ch- nobody ever checked those chocolates. Yeah, yeah nobody checked the bonbons. Then, of course, as everyone knows, in uh, 37 or 38, there is Reefer Madness, which declares marijuana the real public enemy. The original title was Tell Your Children. Other titles were Love Madness, Dope Addict, Doped Youth, and The Burning Question, which is hilarious. And I love it. I do love it. But I'm, I'm very happy that they went with Reefer Madness because it is certainly a cult classic. It is absolutely a cult classic. Now, Jackson and I had not seen it. So we watched it this morning. You popped your Reefer Madness cherry. Uh, we did, yes. I enjoyed that the person who took the original black and white and colorized it Decided to make all the marijuana smoke different colors. <laughs> That's entertaining. I don't people... know that I've seen it colorized. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll show it to you after the show. It's they're, they're blowing out, like, pink smoke and green smoke and yellow smoke. It's definitely interesting. My dad, actually, I, I watched it with my dad when I was much younger, like, probably a teenager. He was like, have you ever seen this? You need to see this. Sit down. <laughs> it is. It really is something to see. And... It definitely takes the idea of killing while stoned in a different direction than the Lakata case, but it also takes lines directly from Anslinger's article. And also there's, in addition, there's a couple scenes like the suicide of a young woman due to, kind of indirectly due to marijuana. And there's, oh my gosh, there's a scene where we all know in reality this is not what happens. The guy's driving his car wildly because he had just smoked a reefer. <laughs> He's driving it so crazily. It's like, no, that's literally the opposite of what happens. Yeah. They that, become the slowest drivers. Maybe that's what happens when you, like, mainline coke and chase it with some moonshine. But. Yeah, exactly, yes. And there's also, I found it interesting, the, the movie opens with this principal addressing a group of parents and talking about how they need to establish an educational program about drugs. And I'm just like, dare! Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was dare. And a lot of us our age went through it. Dare to keep kids off drugs. Okay, I do have a real quick story. I wasn't going to. But, so in the dare class, right? It was for several weeks. and you know, Like one day a week, I think it was. And one time they're talking about how to get help. If you know people who are struggling with addiction of any kind. I didn't. My mom maybe drank like one wine cooler every once in a while. But they're putting these numbers on the board. And my glasses weren't super great. 
And I was just thinking they're putting numbers for like probably like Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, although I'm not really sure. And they're putting those numbers on the board. I'm in the very back of the room and I wasn't going to write them down. But then I had that and probably anxiety driven thought of what if not my family, but what if I have a friend who's going through some shit? What if I know somebody? I should probably have resources just in case, you know, it's good to be prepared. And so I start writing the numbers down, but I'm squinting and I can't really see them. I'm, I'm doing my best. And then the teacher, because the teacher was in the room at the same time as the cop who was doing the, the D.A.R.E. program. She goes, oh, Christy, do you need help seeing the numbers? Single one, yeah. Yes. Essentially, if I actually had family who were addicts, she was outing me. That is horrifying. I can't even remember what teacher that was, but I hate her. <laughs> I got kicked out of a, a D.A.R.E. Um... We were in the auditorium. They had, like, everybody. That sounds really right. Like, oh if, if you asked me true or false, Amber got kicked out of, of, of a D.A.R.E. assembly, I would say, oh, true, true, so true. She probably lit it on fire. I didn't. I, I laughed really, really hard. And it was probably inappropriate. But they were telling a story about somebody that was huffing glue. But they had put the glue in a bag and then glued it to their face. <laughs> no. And I, I have a dark, oh, no. dark sense of humor. And I always have. And I was probably like 13. I was not very old. But just how stupid <laughs> it was to me that you glued it to your own face and then couldn't figure out how to rip a plastic baggie. <laughs> I was rolling. Did they suffocate because of this? And yeah. Die? They didn't rip it open. They suffocated by gluing a bag to their face. This also feels like a story that had he had it in his arsenal or had huffing glue been a thing in his day, Anslinger would have told Anslinger his would it. And I don't even know if it was a true story or if it was like to scare us straight. But just the mental image of taking a sandwich baggie and gluing it to your own face and then not being able to figure out how to take it off your face. Fucking hysterical. Survival of the fittest. I laughed. I got kicked out. Worth it. Worth it. <laughs> Worth it. Now, the back to Reefer Madness. Sorry for that. We don't normally go on so many tangents, but this is this is a, such a, a weird, interesting case that has so many touchstones, I think. More touchstones than we normally have in old-timey, crimey cases. So, anyhow. Uh, Reefer Madness had actually started as a project spearheaded by a church group. Of course. Then it was purchased and recut to transform it from a morality tale into an exploitation film. Hi. You know me, I love film critics. Uh, critic John Ducrane in Time Out called the film one of the most absurdly earnest exercises in paranoia you'll ever have the good fortune to see. <laughs> That's a rave if I've ever heard one. The uh, title of Anslinger's article was used referentially in a, the movie released that same year called Marijuana, Assassin of Youth which has a wonderful tagline. A puff, a party, a tragedy. It promises wild, mad thrills. It was basically a copy of the previous year's Reefer Madness. Even shared a cast member, Dorothy Short, who has the starring female role in Reefer Madness, is also in Marijuana Assassin of Youth. So she found her niche, apparently. <laughs> Or got typecast, one of the two. Oh, those are probably the only two movies she did. <laughs> yeah. There's a theory of why Anslinger was so gung-ho to get rid of weed. And I'm sure you've all heard this. 
He was friends with some rich families, uh, among them the DuPonts, the Hearsts, and the Mellons. So the DuPont family had a lot of business in the paper and fiber areas, and hemp was a threat to that. Hearst also had some lumber holdings, and hemp was a threat to that somehow. Andrew Mellon was Secretary of the Treasury at that time. There have been some takedowns of this uh, as a conspiracy theory, or even just maybe an exaggerated version of actual events. That's a whole other rabbit hole I started to go down and then backed out of, because I was towards towards the end of my notes, and at least on on page 11, (laughs) I know when to back out of a rabbit hole, not so much on page one. But maybe we can find another reason for Anslinger's enthusiasm for his crusade in his 1937 testimony to Congress. <sighs> Gotta take a deep breath for this. Gotta. Everybody take a deep breath, because get ready. There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana usage. This marijuana causes white women to seek relations with Negroes, entertainers, and any others. Those all were his words. None of those were my words. I didn't like saying them. It was not a fun time. I just want to let everybody know, don't come at me. (laughs) I didn't like it. He actually said worse than that, too. Ooh, oh my God. Really? I missed that. I don't know if I even want to say this, but... um... So I'm going to go ahead and apologize ahead of time. This is not how I feel at all. But this was a quote from him. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men. Oh! He left the dog whistle at home and brought the bullhorn. Jesus! It's disgusting. That is, talk about, that's that's not even saying the quiet part out loud. That's living the quiet part as your life and being loud about it. Well, and then, oh, and, and then in 1939, he out. actually started to target Billie Holiday. Yes. Ruthlessly. Mm-hmm. He was going after her because she was rumored to have a heroin addiction. Yes. So he was just trying to, like, crumble her career because she was Billie Holiday. Yeah. And I mean drugs, obviously. And also the song Strange Fruit. Yes. Was uh, part of what drew him to target her. Wonderful song, by the way. Uh, Billy Holiday, just fantastic. And, and, you know, fuck this guy. Well, and you know, it was actually said that the people that were really close to Billy Holiday actually believed that Anslinger's campaign against her caused her enormous strain and may have contributed to her death. Which is really, if you want to find a murderer here, we might have indirectly found one. Yeah. He also used the story of Victor Victor Licata in his testimony to Congress. And the legislation he was advocating for was successful. Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed it into law on August 2nd, 1937 as the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. 32 years later, it was overturned in Leary v. United States. And yes, it's that Leary of the Timothy variety. And then the following year, Congress was like, well, we better fill this gap up, even worse. And they passed the Controlled Substances Act that made marijuana federally illegal. Then states seemed to react to the federal laws with kind of going in the other direction, decriminalizing it, not making it necessarily legal, but making it maybe a misdemeanor, stuff like that. And uh, that started in 1973 
Do you know which state led the way in this? Which state was first to uh, decriminalize or at least lessen the penalties for, for marijuana? Colorado? Go a little further south. I'll give you a hint. Everything's bigger there. Texas? Yes! Texas. Right? <laughs> Texas is on my shit list this week. Same. The same. Very much. Top of it. Yes. Yeah, they made a state law that possession of four ounces or less was a misdemeanor. So, not a felony. Many years passed. And then, in 2014, Colorado legalized it. Other states have followed suit, some uh, just medically, some recreationally. We live in a medical state. Uh, although it is still illegal at the federal level. For now. For now. As we've seen, laws can change. And I hope they do, honestly. It is a very silly law that was brought about for very silly reasons. Very silly reasons by people who had stupid ideas and that were completely inaccurate as to the effects of weed. Okay, so, well, in fairness, though, most of the laws we have were brought about for silly reasons by stupid people. That's not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. But some of them, like, okay, like, public safety stuff, like seatbelt laws. Yeah, that saves lives. That's good. But this whole idea, it's, it's so wrong-headed. And again, it exploits these people's stories who I honestly think were using marijuana to alleviate the symptoms of a mental illness and instead blames the marijuana. And then, guess what? All this attention gets paid to marijuana and zero of it gets paid to mental illness. They weren't passing any acts regarding mental health that year, were no. they? No. No. It was all attention on the marijuana because it's, it's too hard to deal with mental illness. Or they didn't, you know, we can, we can give them a pass and say, oh, they didn't understand it. But they knew that he had something and they diagnosed him with something and the cops wanted to commit him in the year prior to the murders. So there's definitely something there. But if they can blame it on the drug, then nobody gets the blame. It's just this inanimate object that gets to blame and a man who suffers for it and then is imprisoned unconstitutionally. I still can't get over that. Much as I can't get over Jack DeWitt's purple prose that he started off this article oh with God, yeah. practically jacking off to free yeah. All right, so providence. Really where we're at is fuck you DeWitt. Yes. Fuck you Bush. Yes. And double fuck you Anslinger you racist son of a bitch. Double double. Double, 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 fuck you, Anslinger. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm there with you. Yeah. And, and Victor, you may or may not have done it, but it wasn't the weed. It wasn't the weed. Absolutely. Yes. So that's where we, that's where we land there. So, all right. Well, that was, <laughs> that was a different episode for us. I, Rarely are we in agreement with, with like the, the murderer or the possible murderer is just like, you know what? You're cool. Everyone else, fuck you. Yeah. Because they made him unwillingly and unwittingly this figurehead of a movement, essentially. Well, and you saw his picture, too, right? The picture oh that was God. in every paper. They picked the worst picture. And they must have just been like, hey, asshole. And he spins around, and he's got these huge eyes, and it looks like he hasn't slept in weeks. And he's got, like, a snarly face on his, like, a teeth bared. Yeah, and he probably didn't even know what was going on. It really, it looks like he has not slept in a week, and his whole family was just murdered. He's still unsure of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that's the picture they use. It's like the worst possible picture they could have taken of him. They're like, crazy monster that smokes weed. Yeah, it absolutely is. 
he was used to demonize this. Muggle monster. Muggle monster. He was a muggle monster. I love alliteration. It's still going to be dope evil. It's still going to be that dope evil. evil is dope. So, oh, all right. Well, I have such a collection of stuff to put up on the social media. I have the cover of the Inside Detective magazine. I have the pictures that were in that article. I have some marijuana propaganda for you. So come check out the social media. And sometimes you, every once in a while, you see something that we didn't even get to on the show. This last week, I posted a, remember how we were talking with Mary Bateman, how after her execution, they made things out of her skin, like books, and then they gave patches away to people. Well, I found this little picture of a cup. A foldable cup. So basically, this is portable. You can just like like fold it down, just scrunch the skin down. A cup to drink from that was made of Mary Bateman's skin. We did not catch that in the episode. I only found it and on it's Google. Amazing. Episode. Yes, it is absolutely amazing. So every once in a while, you not only get media related to the case, but you also get media that is related to aspects that we didn't find in our original research. It, everybody's human. We all miss things. We yeah. missed the skin yeah. cup. We don't look at the Google images when we're researching the actual case. We just look at the actual Google results to find text and information. So we missed the skin cup. I might I might start looking at images, though. <laughs> I know, right? This is kind of teaching us a lesson I think we may, maybe need to learn. So come check us out over on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are old-timey, crimey in all places. Also, we didn't pimp it at the beginning of the show, so here it is, the Patreon. Patreon! It is where the fun is at. We are at over 90 bonus episodes, plus several extra extras, and you get access to all of those, that entire back catalog. Speaking of back catalog, I do talk about butt stuff a lot, apparently. Yeah, Amber's really having a theme. We'll just say theme. We won't say I have a theme lately. Uh, So... So yeah, come check that out. It's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. We have the weekly bonus episodes and then a monthly extra, extra bonus episode. Beast, you need to get us your theme. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so come check that out. $5 a month and it gets you all the old timey crime you can possibly imagine. I can't wait until we hit 100 in a couple of months here. Uh, 100 t- tiny. I, it's unbelievable. So, So yeah, there's that. And we also have links in the show notes to our Amazon wish list where you can buy us books to actually do a case on. So you can decide what we do the case on. There is um, uh, merch in the show notes. Some I'm, I used to say someday I'll write all this stuff down, but I think I've just accepted that I'm not going to and I'm running with it. At this point. So that I can say the words... That's all my bullshit. Oh, rate, review, and subscribe. I I don't think it matters at this point. But sure, it makes our day. And you love us? You want us to be happy? Write me reviews. Tell me how much you love me. Or hate me. Whatever. Tell Amber, but in in a family-friendly way, how much you you like her new obsession with with butt stuff. I don't know what is wrong with my brain. (laughs) I don't know what's going on either. I'm definitely noticing it. So, Amber, what you doing this week? Uh, Too much. Too much. I uh, I have a temporary promotion that is just making me overwork myself to the ground. And then I bought a house, so I'm painting it and renovating it and doing all the things. And have to move in in the next couple days. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, boy. Kill me now. No, I won't. I love you too much. But you could do a show about it. But that would be really, like, kind of 
more of a confession. <laughs> and That's I think fair. that could be used against me. <laughs> that is fair. So I, this week, uh, we're going to get started painting this room sometime at some point, but that there's still some work to be done in the prepping because, as you know, it's since you didn't move your furniture into your house, it's easier to paint when you haven't got all the furniture in there. What do you know? <laughs> so Yeah. I'm going to be doing that at some point, painting these bricks. And I made a new cross-stitch pattern that I'm going to start on. It's going to be really different from my normal stuff, I think. It's not cross-stitch, actually. It's black work embroidery, but it's going to be different. Um, and I also am glad that I chose now to work with my like black fabric because I got my hair dyed recently, and it's, uh, it's a purple peekaboo with purple on the bottom and blue on top, and everything is purple including my nails, and that can transfer really easily to, like, white fabric. <laughs> so I'm super glad that I was like, no, I'll use, I'll use the black fabric. That's a good idea. Yeah, so, and uh, sometime this week we're going to come over and see your new house, and I'm very uh -huh. excited. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm doing this week. And, I'm you know, all, all kinds of old-timey, crimey stuff, of course, but that's pretty much a given, so, because this is what we do, so. <laughs> yeah, we do the old-timey crime stuff. Yes, we do. We do the crimes, and they are of the old timeies. So thank you for listening to our uh, butt stuff words. <laughs> and as always, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend and week, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. My sources are Paul Guzzo in the Tampa Bay Times, Inside Detective Magazine via the Reefer Madness Museum, JAMA Psychiatry, Earl Perkins in Thursday Review, Laura Smith on Timeline, Assassin of Youth via Herb Museum, some really fun sources this week, Crime Door, a couple of Wikipedia articles, and from newspapers.com, The Brainerd Clipper, Knoxville Journal, Instant Star, El Paso Times, and The Times News via Chronicling America. Oh, also, thank you, Chris Garcia, for newspapers.com. Uh, my sources this week are NewYorkDailyNews.com by Mara Bobson. Timeline with Laura Smith and Tampa Bay News with Paul Guzzo, as well as Wikipedia. Three for madness. <laughs> that was almost as big as my balls. <laughs> yes, look at that. My goodness. <laughs>